Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see y'all. Happy Mother's Day to our moms. Uh, very thankful for our moms. Tell you what, I don't know if you've been keeping up with this, but in this day, the uh, declining birth rate worldwide is very strange. You'll probably see stories on this, but basically people in the world just aren't having babies. And so it looks like the population of the world is going to peak in about 20 years and then it's going to decline for just as far as the eye can see. So we're very thankful for our moms. You young moms, keep having lots of babies. Uh, just a few announcements before I get into the service. A couple of, couple of things. Uh, one really exciting uh, Greg mentioned it in the elders uh, meeting notes that we are gonna, we've started putting our sermons on a website called Sermon Audio. And it's, I would encourage, they have a great app, they've got a nice website, so I'd encourage you to get on there and look and you can see all of our sermons. So we're going to try to keep those up to date more, uh, but it's really nice because on the site they have uh, just everything classified by uh, Bible and speaker and everything else. So we're excited about the, the Sermon Audio thing. Also, the, uh, Greg mentioned that we're going to have uh, this, this Wednesday a, me, a time when I'm going to be discussing a book called uh, Live Not By Lies by Rod Dreher. We're, we're such a small church, we can be flexible about this. So I, I, I have heard some, from, from some people that this Wednesday might not be good. If it's not, would you let me know? Because we can reschedule it. And if so, let me know like today and I'll send out an email and we can reschedule it. So just be on the lookout for that. All right? All uh, right. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. We're continuing a a series in the parables of Luke. And while you're turning, I'll I'll tell you this. I I think what I'm going to do is finish up. I'm kind of ADHD when it comes to sermon series. I'll I'll start one, then I'll cut in the middle and do something else. I think what I'm going to do is finish out the sermon on the sermon series on Luke's parables And then I'll probably do, I did a little series on Christianity and culture. I think I'm going to do maybe two or three more sermons on that probably in the summer. And then I'm going to pick up a new sermon series. And just if you think about it, pray for me on that. Um, I'm thinking about going through the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is one of my favorite books. So uh, I'm thinking about doing that. Um, So Luke 16 today is a passage of uh, the, the unjust manager or the dishonest manager um, and I'll say this too, I'm probably going to take my time today. We have, it's funny, churches are on Mother's Day, we, this is traditionally like one of our lowest attendance Sundays of the year because people go see their own moms. We have a younger church, so, so a lot of people go see their own moms. So that's the way it is today. And I'm just going to take my time today. So we're kind of concerned about the COVID and being jammed in here. But so I may end up taking my time. This is a great passage. Uh, unjust manager, uh, dishonest manager. Most people consider it the most difficult parable that Jesus teaches. And we're going to talk about it. Um, Chris will, a lot of times, will pick out songs that go along with the sermon. And yesterday he sent me a text and he said, <laughs> he said I don't know what to do on this one. This, he said, how about The Gambler by Kenny Rogers? How about we sing that one? <laughs> so I thought we were going to do, you know, on a warm summer's evening. Uh, I thought we were going to do The Gambler. But, uh, but it, it is a, it's a difficult passage. It's a strange passage. Um, but it, but Jesus is talking about money 
And Jesus has a lot to say about money. I, I have never picked out a, a topic, like I, sometimes I'll do topical sermons. I've never picked out talking about money, but I end up preaching a lot about it because Jesus talks a lot about it. So that's what we're going to look at today. So we're going to start in Luke 16, beginning in verse 1. And I'm just going to walk through the passage. We'll end up going through verse 13. All right, so Luke 16, beginning in verse 1. Jesus also said to the disciples, and I'll stop there. He's speaking to his disciples, but if you look in verse 14, you'll see the Pharisees were listening in on this. They heard all these things. So Jesus said to the disciples, and he tells this parable. There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. All right, so we've got a rich man, and I believe the man is a landowner. And we'll talk about the debtors. I think the rich man is a landowner. And the debtors are farmers. I think they're tenant farmers. I think what they're doing is renting the land, and they're paying the rich man to rent the land. They're going to pay him in produce at the end of the harvest season. And I, I'll, a couple of reasons I think that. One, in Jesus' day, if you had a wealthy man, they were always landowners. Always. That's the way they had their wealth. They didn't have stocks and stuff. They had their, their, their uh, wealth in land. Also, if you look in that word, uh, it says the rich man who had a manager. That word manager is the Greek word is oikonomos. So if you do the big fat Greek wedding, you know, name a word, any word, and I give you the Greek root, root word. The, the Greek root, if the, this is the word where we get the word economy. Okay, Mr. Portocolos, where does economy come from? Economy is eco or oiko. With nomi is nomos. So it's oikonomos. It's eco, eco economy. So anytime you see nami at the end, Deuteronomy, second law. Nami is law or rule. So uh, autonomy. Auto is self. Nami is rule. Self-rule. So nami, anytime you see nami, it has to do with rule or law. So oikonomos or nomos. Oiko is estate or household. Nomos or nomos is rule. So it's the estate ruler. The oikonomos, the economy, is estate ruler. And then what, they, what they would do is they would manage the land. They would manage the estate. So this estate manager, this oikonomos, handled all the business for the rich landowner. And this is important because the manager, the, the oikonomos, had the authority to sign contracts on behalf of the landowner. He was like an attorney. He had a power of attorney to, to represent the landowner. So he could sign a contract and it would be binding on the landowner. So it was a prestigious position. So it says that charges were brought to the rich man saying the manager's been wasting your possessions. So charges were brought to him. What this shows is that the community was involved in this. So the rich man may have been far away and allowing the manager to, to handle the, the estate, the land, and someone in the community come and tell, comes and tells the rich landowner that the manager is defrauding him. The manager is wasting his possessions. And the word wasteful right here is actually prodigal, which is interesting because in the previous chapter is the story of the prodigal son. So we've got the prodigal son, and now we've got the prodigal manager. Okay, so now verse 2. It said, and he, the rich man, called him, the estate manager, and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. 
So the rich man has trusted the manager. He has provided for him. But the manager has been stealing from his boss. He's been wasteful. Now notice this. This is pretty, pretty amazing the way Jesus tells these stories. The rich man doesn't say anything about stealing. He, he doesn't say, have you been stealing from me? Or, or he doesn't say, you know, you've been stealing from me. He just says, what is this that I hear about you? This is an effective way to deal with people. The rich man is smart because he wants the manager to show his hand. He wants the manager to try to reveal something. It's like if you know your kids have done something, but you're not sure. And you go, what is this that I've been hearing? And be honest, be honest, you know. And you're expecting them to, to tell you to reveal something. But the manager doesn't say anything. He, he keeps his mouth shut. He doesn't admit. He doesn't deny. But by saying nothing, what he is doing is he is implicitly admitting. He doesn't, he doesn't deny that he's been doing this. So the manager now, he, he, he has been cheating his boss, and now he's gotten caught. Then it says, the rich man says, turn in the account of your management. You can no longer be manager. So he's saying, hand over the accounts, hand over the ledgers, hand over the books. So the manager would keep a, a record of all the, the debtors, and he would keep these contracts of all the tenant farmers. And he's saying, turn in all the ledgers, turn in all the contracts. Now, this is important too. The rich man right now does not make the manager stop right then. He doesn't make him stop being a manager. And you can see that because if you look down at verse 4, when the manager is talking to himself, he says, so that when I am removed from management. He hasn't been removed yet. The, the rich man said, you know, clean up the books and then turn it in and then you're going to stop being managed. But he, is, he has not been removed from management yet. And this is a mistake on the part of the rich man. Because now he's giving the manager time to scheme, time to, to, to defraud him. All right. So the landowner uh, now tells him to turn in the books, verse 3, but, he's, but the guy's still the manager, verse 3. And now the, the manager starts talking to himself, and he says, The manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, he says, I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. So he's talking to himself, and he says, What, what, is, what am I going to do now? Since the, the landowner is taking the management, he's taking, about to remove the management from me. He says, I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. So he doesn't want to do manual labor. He's been doing, uh, he's had a cushy desk job, and he doesn't want to do manual labor. He doesn't want to beg. He's a proud man. He doesn't want to beg. So now he's thinking of a plan. Now, what's significant about all this, too, is not only was he about to lose his job, he was going to lose his home. In those days, the estate manager would have lived on the land. So he's about to lose his job, and he's about to lose his house. Also, in this community, people would have known what happened, and his reputation would have been destroyed. So people in the community would not have hired him for a job. So no one's going to hire him. So he's about to lose his job, he's about to lose his house, and nobody's going to hire him for a job. So he's got to think of a plan. What is he going to do? Verse 4, he's still talking to himself. And he said, I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So he's sitting at home, he's thinking this, and he comes up with a plan. He says, I got it. I got it. I know what I'm going to do. I know what I'm going to do. So he says, people will receive me into their houses. As a figure of speech, it basically means people will 
hire him, pay him money, do him favors or whatever, take care of him. So this is the key point in the parable. He's planning for his future. He's got a plan. Now, this is cool. Jesus is such an awesome storyteller. He doesn't tell us what the manager decides. He doesn't reveal us, reveal it to us. So there's this tension in the story. We don't know what he's going to do. We just know he has a plan, but we're going to watch it all play out. So now verses, let's look at verses 5 through 7. He said, so, now we're going to see the plan play out. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. Okay, so the, the manager now is showing what his plan is to save his own skin. He's, it says in verse 5, summoning his master's debtors one by one. So here's what would happen. Let's say the rich man owns, let's just make up a number. He, let's say he owns 1,000 acres. These are big numbers. We'll look at the number, the amount of money involved here. Let's say he owns 1,000 acres. And let's say he's renting out his land to 10 different debtors, and each one of them has 100 acres that they're working. Some more, some less. So each farmer has entered into a contract with the landowner, and one says, okay, I'm going to plant wheat, and at the end of the harvest, then I'm going to give you so much wheat to the landowner as, as rent, as payment. And the next guy says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work this orchard of olive trees, and at the end of the olive harvest, I'm going to pay you in olive oil, Okay. So now it's not harvest yet, so there's no debt collecting going on in the story. There's never a debt actually collected. But what we're seeing is the manager is actually changing all the contracts. Look at this too. This is, this is an important point. It says he summoned the debtors one by one. When I first read it, I thought he went to the debtors. but No, he summoned the debtors. Now this is significant. Because, so he has, a, he has a messenger go and summon the debtor to him. Now think about it. If you're a tenant farmer and the manager of the rich landowner sends a messenger and he says, okay, come to see the manager. Come to see the man. What are you going to think? Let's put it in today's terms. Let's say you're working for a big company and the secretary of the CEO says, come up to this office and, and meet in this office. What are you going to think? You're going to think the CEO directed the secretary to summon you. The summoning is a position of power. So when the manager summons these guys, it's a position of power, and the, the, the farmers would have assumed that the landowner was directing all this. The farmers would have assumed that the landowner is telling the manager, hey, bring this guy in. Also, it says he summoned them one by one. He summoned them one by one. The manager doesn't bring them all in at one time. He doesn't want them talking to each other. He doesn't want them to know. And he has to do this quickly. So when the debtor, I think when the debtors come in, they're summoned, they assume that the landowner is summoning them and only them. It's like a special deal. And I think that's the genius of the shrewd manager in this parable. So he, and it says he summons every one of these tenants. We're only given two examples, uh, one of an olive uh, farmer and what of a wheat farmer so look at continuing in verse 5 and 6 he said to the first how much do you owe my master he said a hundred measures of oil and he said Tim take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50 
So again, this guy is an olive farmer. He's got this big grove of olive trees. He has a contract with the master. He has a contract with the landowner. And let's say the contract says, I owe you 100 measures of oil at the end of harvest. Okay? Well, now the farmer writes a bill. He writes a contract and doesn't say I owe you 100 anymore. It says now I owe you 50. And the manager signs his name to the contract and it's binding on the landowner. So the manager now has established this new contract. He's cut it in half. Now, it's, it's hard for us to, to figure out exactly what food cost back then, uh, but they paid a lot more in food back then. Typically, a, a typical worker would spend about half of their income on food, whereas today we spend maybe 10 or 20% on food. So they would spend half of their, their money on food. So this, this amount of olive oil was about 900 gallons of olive oil. Back then, this may have been worth $100,000, Okay. So when he says, you're going to cut the contract in half, now he's just saved this, this olive tree farmer $50,000, let's say. Okay? Then he said in verse 7, then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, 100 measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. So this guy was a wheat farmer. He had massive wheat fields. This, this amount of, of wheat is just huge. This would have been about, the amount of the payment would have been about 60,000 pounds of wheat. That's just the payment, and he's making a lot more than that. So this may have been worth something like half a million dollars. That's how much this is. This is a huge amount of money. And the manager now has just cut off 20% of this, and he signed this new contract, and it's binding. So now he's just saved the wheat farmer $100,000. But see, he's stolen from his his master, but he's doing a favor to all these farmers. And it said that he did the, every one of these debtors one by one. So he's saving maybe 50000 for this guy, 100000 for this guy. He goes through every one of the debtors. Now, again, the, the manager doesn't collect any debt at this point. It's not time. It's not harvest time, but he's changed these contracts. Now, the manager now has made a lot of friends, <laughs> When they find out what's happened, he's now made a lot of friends by this scheme because he saved all these farmers big time. And they're going to owe him. This is a shame-honor culture. And when somebody does you a favor in a shame-honor culture, you're obligated to help him out. So that's what's happened. They're obligated. All these debtors are now obligated to take care of this manager. Okay? So you see the genius of this plan. He's now taking care. He was ruined before. And now... He's basically stuck it to the man. He stuck it to the rich man, and he has been shrewd, and he is now taking taking care of himself. So now we get to verse 8, and this is the end of the parable. It said, Jesus comments and said, The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. The master commended the dishonest man for his shrewdness. The rich master finds out what happened. And there's a strange statement. It says he commended the dishonest manager. Now, he didn't commend him for his dishonesty, for his evil behavior, but he commended him for his shrewdness. He commended him for his, his, his cleverness. So, the, so the, the rich guy is basically saying, you got me. You got me. You pulled one over on me. He, said, he basically says, I got to hand it to you because you really got me on this. One. Continuing in verse 8, Jesus says, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. So Jesus wraps up the parable here. 
In other places, Jesus speaks about this generation as this wicked generation, this depraved generation. He's talking about non-believers, people who are in the kingdom of darkness. So it's the sons of this world, this generation, are more shrewd than the sons of light. The sons of light are the followers of God, people who are believers, people who are worshiping the Lord. They're in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of light. So Jesus is saying that the sons of this world, worldly people, are often very sophisticated in how they make money and even how they defraud and scheme to make money. Uh, they're, they're shrewd and they're crafty. If you know anything about high-level politicians or high-level business people, they are very shrewd in what they do. I saw a stat recently that Wall Street investment bankers give to presidential candidates. They have picked the winner almost every single time for decades. They give the most money to the winner. And you know what? They know that favors are coming their way. Wall Street investment bankers, they pick the presidential winner, and they're going to get favors in return. They're not dumb. They know how these things work. They know how they're, they're shrewd. They, they do these things that, that take care of themselves. And that's what Jesus is saying about the, the sons of this world. Jesus also says the sons of light, us, we're not as wise. We're not as shrewd. So what does Jesus, this is the end of the parable now. So what does Jesus want us to learn from this crafty, dishonest manager? I think it's this. I think it's simply this. This manager gave serious thought about his future. He gave serious thought about his future, and he came up with an effective plan. He came up with a plan so that he would be welcomed into the houses of others. Remember that? So they will welcome me in their houses. Verse 9, Jesus says this. So now he's applying the parable. And he says, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Okay, so Jesus gives us a command here. He says, make friends for yourselves. And he applies the teaching. What does this mean? This is a weird statement. I have struggled with this statement all week. He says, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. What in the world does that mean? Well, unrighteous wealth is simply money. Uh, I think, is the King James filthy lucre or something, a cool, cool phrase like that? Unrighteous, it just means the money of this world. So he's saying, in some way, and we'll, we'll think more about it, Jesus is saying, in some way, make friends through money. Okay, how do you make friends through money? And then he explains, he says, so that when the money fails you, these new friends that you have made will receive you into, and I think the key is, eternal dwellings. What does this mean? Here's what Jesus is saying, I think. He's saying, use your money to make friends so that they will receive you into eternal dwellings. So, in other words, so that when you die, these friends will meet with you in heaven or on the new earth, and they will welcome you. In other words, he's talking about the life to come. So, as his followers, we should use our money, and again, we're going to think about how we can make friends. How do we make friends who are going to be brought into Jesus' kingdom? And again, then we die, then they will welcome us into eternity. They will welcome us in heaven, in the, in the resurrection life to come. I think Jesus is saying this. Use your money 
so that it's going to be used for kingdom work, for eternal purposes, so that the money can be allowed, now follow the train of thought, so the money can be allowed to allow the gospel to go forth, so people hear the gospel, they're saved, they believe, and they're brought into the kingdom. These are now our new friends. These are our friends. When the gospel goes forth and people believe, they're brought into the family of God. They are now our friends. And when we see them in the resurrection life in heaven, then we can, they're going to welcome us. We're going to welcome each other when we see them. So as the gospel is proclaimed, as the Bible is taught, people become Christians. And they become our friends. Even if we don't know them now, we'll see them in, in eternity, in these eternal dwellings. So faith comes by hearing, right? Faith comes by hearing the word of God. But the fact is, ministry requires money. It requires money. If we support, for example, uh, a missionary. We just started this week supporting a missionary in Africa, Ryan Curry. He's going to Liberia. He's going to be teaching pastors in Liberia. We're using unrighteous wealth, money, to support Ryan and his family. It costs money for Ryan to go over there and to provide for his family. He now teaches pastors in Liberia. Those pastors go out. They proclaim the gospel. People are saved. They are now our friends. We have now made friends through unrighteous wealth. And they will welcome us into the kingdom. We will see these new friends that we've been a part of in supporting this ministry. Okay? So the bottom line is Jesus is saying give generously. Give generously to the work of Christ's kingdom. You know what? It's God's money anyway, right? It's God's money anyway. He owns everything. So Jesus is saying, give it away generously to support kingdom work. And what we find is, and we're going to continue thinking about this, what we find is that a lot of Christians don't give very much. A lot of Christians don't even tithe. As I said, I don't talk a lot about money, but at this point, I'm just ex- asking our church to examine your own heart on this, to think about this, to give seriously, serious thought to your attitudes about money and your attitudes about giving. And to think about it from God's perspective, from an eternal perspective. Now, maybe you're saying this. Maybe you're saying, well, I can't give right now. Maybe you're saying, I can't give right now. I can't afford to give right now. But if I had more, then I would give. I can't afford now. But, but if, I, if I won the lottery or something, then I could afford to give a lot. And you know what Jesus says? <laughs> he says, no, you wouldn't. <laughs> He says, no, you wouldn't. He says, if you won the lottery or, or made lots of money, you wouldn't give more. And you know why? It's not me saying it. Jesus is saying it. Look at the next verse. Look at verses 10 to 12. Jesus says in verse 10, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, money, who will entrust to you the true riches? And I think he's talking about eternal blessings, happiness in the life to come. If you have not been faithful in that which is another's, God's, who will give you that which is your own? Rewards in heaven, responsibility here. So again, if you say, if I had more money, then I'd be generous. And Jesus says, no, you wouldn't. So what Jesus is saying is what you do with your money now, even a small amount of money, that shows your heart. And if you're not faithful, this is Jesus' words, if you're not faithful with a very little, then you're not going to be faithful when you have a lot. Jesus says, one who is dishonest toward God with very little will also 
be dishonest when he has a lot. So again, I would just ask you to examine your heart on this. Verse 13, there's another one. Jesus closes out this, this section of teaching with verse 13, and this is a powerful and a frightening statement, and I want us to spend some time thinking about it. Jesus says in verse 13, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and money. Notice this. Jesus says no servant can serve two masters. He says you cannot serve both God and money. Remember in school the difference between can and may? May is permission. May I sharpen my pencil, teacher? May is permission. Can is ability. Can is ability. Jesus is saying, you do not have the ability to serve both God and money. Jesus is saying, it is impossible to serve both God and money. Jesus is saying, it is not possible to love God and at the same time to love money. I'm going to be honest with you. This week has been a punch in the gut to me. This has been a punch in the gut because I can have good intentions with my money. I'll I'll be completely honest. I don't have dreams of owning a yacht or having lots of stuff. I don't have anything I want to buy, really. I don't. I can have good intentions of wanting to bless my family and take care of my family and of of me blessing the church. Right now, I don't take a salary. Nobody in this church takes a salary, and and it's really great because it frees us up to do so much. So nobody takes a salary. So it would be awesome if I never had to take a salary here. If I retired from my job and I had enough money where I would never have to take a salary. So I I can have good intentions with my money, okay? And these are good things. But being honest, I can have a strong tendency to love money. I'm just confessing that to you. I can have a strong tendency to love money. And 1 Timothy 6.10 says this, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It doesn't say money's evil, but it says the love of money is the root, is, the, is sort of the seed that leads into all kinds of evil. So Jesus says you cannot love both God and money. It's impossible. You can't love both. If, if you love God, then you're not going to love money. It's like a, it's like a seesaw thing, right? If, if, I, if my love for God is up here, I can't have love for money. If, if I love God, then I won't love money. At the same time, if I love money, I can't love God. You can't do both at the same time. And that is frightening to me. So if you're going to be a lover of God, you can't love money. If you're going to love God, at best, you have to have sort of a take-it-or-leave-it attitude when it comes to money. It, it, it's, it's fine, but it's not that great. That's the attitude that we have to have if we're going to love God. And I think for many of us, if we're honest, we would say, I really do love money. <laughs> I think if we're honest, we'd say, I really do love it. And if that's the case, then what Jesus is saying is, you're going to hate God. And that's terrifying to me. I also think it applies to other things. I was talking with my wife about this this week. 
Anything can become an idol. For me, I can have a tendency to love money. For my wife, it can be other things. She doesn't have a desire. She doesn't care about money. She doesn't even know how much money she makes, honestly. She has no idea, and she doesn't care. So I'm responsible for all the finances in the family. She just doesn't care. But she can have other things that she loves. She can have other idols of the heart. Let's say that. Let's say I I can love my reputation. What if my treasure is my reputation? If my greatest treasure is my reputation, it's the same thing. I can't love God. It's the same thing. If I want to be thought of as a wonderful parent, if I want to be thought of as an amazing parent, and that's my treasure, then I can't love God. That's my idol, and I end up valuing that thing more than God. If I want to be thought of as an amazing lawyer or an amazing IT guru or incredible at sales or successful teacher or coach, if those are the things that I value, or if I want to be thought of as as witty and smart or whatever, if those are the things that I value, and that's my idol, if that's what I value most, then I'll end up hating God. That's what Jesus is saying. If you love those things, you can't be devoted to God because you're going to be devoted to them and you're going to be despising God. Now, I would just say this. There is a tendency. Sometimes when we hear things like this, it cuts us to the heart. And that's good. That's the Holy Spirit working. There can be, let me give you a warning. There can be a tendency for us to hear sermons like this and then just forget about it. And then just pass it away and then continue on. Be cut to the, cut to the quick while we're in here and then just continue on doing what we're doing. I would ask you, don't do that. Check your heart to see if money or any other thing is an idol that you love and then take steps to actually change and ask the Holy Spirit to help you in this. And to our non-Christian friends, I say this every time I talk about money, don't worry about giving, please. If you're, if you're a non-Christian, don't think that I'm asking you to give. Don't worry about giving. But I would just ask you, if you're a non-Christian, like the manager, think about your future. But think about your future beyond life on this earth and think about your future after the grave, after death. Think about your eternal future. On your deathbed, as Jesus said, this money will fail. On your deathbed, you're not going to value a pile of cash. Who cares? If you've, got, if you've got 20 heartbeats left in you and you've got a massive amount of cash over here, who cares? That money's going to fail you. Who cares about your reputation, what people think of you if you've got a dozen heartbeats left? Who cares if people think that you were a great parent or you were a successful person or you were funny or whatever? Who cares? That stuff doesn't matter. All the stuff of this earth is going to fail you. I think at the end of the service, we're not singing The Gambler. I think we're singing uh, My Worth is Not in What I Own by Getty Song. It says, My worth is not in what I own. My worth is not in skill or name. Reputation, skills. My worth is not in that. So where is our true worth found? The song says it. My worth is found in the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross. I rejoice, not in myself, my reputation. I rejoice in my Redeemer. I rejoice in my Redeemer. Greatest treasure. He has to be the greatest treasure in our life. Jesus Christ has to be our greatest treasure. Not money, wealth, Winning, skill, reputation, whatever. Jesus Christ and the price that he paid on the cross, that has to be our greatest treasure. And when he's our greatest treasure, and I'm wrapping up here, when he's our greatest treasure, this is the beauty, we're free. We're free not to worry about money. We're free not to worry about what other people think about us. We're freed up in that. 
we're free to have a take-it-or-leave-it attitude with money or anything else. If Jesus is our treasure, and when it comes to money, we can be generous. Because money will fail us, our reputation will fail us, and I'm done with this. Our reputation will fail us, money will fail us. But when we have Christ and we have the eternal life that he gives, that's something that will never fail us. It will never fail us. So my encouragement, church, is seriously, let's make the Lord our greatest treasure. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we love you and praise you. Jesus, thank you for your teaching here uh, in this difficult parable. Uh, If nothing else, Lord, thank you for just teaching me this week and just revealing to me that I can have a tendency to love money. I acknowledge that, Lord, and I don't want that to be the case. So I pray just for folks here, if they they realize that they are loving money and treasuring or or treasuring reputation or whatever, pleasure, whatever, whatever idols that we have in our hearts, Lord, I pray that you would just uh, rip it out of our hearts, even if it hurts, even if it hurts, because you're worth it. You need to be our greatest treasure, Jesus. So uh, help us in that, Lord. Help, help us not just to walk away from the sermon and continue down the same path that we've been on. Help us, th- like, like the dishonest manager, to plan for the future and to think seriously about action plan that we can take for the future. And that includes uh, seeking to kill a love of money and kill a love of reputation or whatever. So help us in that, Lord. We love you. Thank you for my friends here today. Just help us. We want to be people who, who treasure you, Jesus. So help us in that. And for anybody here who, who has not put their faith in you, Lord, I pray that you would help them see that, Jesus, you are the most valuable one. You are worthy. And, and, and when we give our lives to you, we're just freed up from all the, really the distress of this world and all the burdens of this world because we can just focus on you and you're never going to fail us. So we love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.